I read a statistic that said if you were to try by yourself to share the gospel and, and say you converted 1,000 people to Christ per year in evangelizing them, and you did that uh, every year, 1,000 people every year, how long would it take you to convert the whole world? came out to 10,000 years if you were to do it by yourself. But if you were to convert one person and then teach that person to share the gospel and evangelize and they converted and so on and so forth and multiply just one person a year, how long would it take to convert the whole world? 32 years. I like that statistic because it helps me bridge this gap between discipleship, which is our topic that we've been considering, and the place of evangelism within discipleship. We're going to see this morning that uh, we're going to follow up from last week's lesson of discipleship begins first, as we saw last week, with a head level change. We become a learner. That's where repentance actually uh, gets its word. Repentance means change of mind. And it evidences itself through a change of action, which is what our, our topic today is going to be essentially. But last week we looked at becoming a learner, head change, and then a worshiper a heart change. Now we're going to consider a disciple also includes a lifestyle change, the complete person. So that's the part two of our call to discipleship. And I told Jill last night, I'm excited about this lesson. Becoming laborers and witnesses to the kingdom of God. Very often in Scripture, you see God calling people who are not gifted to what God is calling them to do. I think chiefly and primarily of Moses, because Moses was such a great historical figure, had such historical significance to the nation of Israel, and yet he couldn't speak. And God called him to go and say to Pharaoh. God will call us to do things that when we look at ourselves, we're like, I can't do that, God. And he says, go, I'll be with you. And at that point, we can respond one of two ways. We can respond in faith and say, okay, I'll go, which is what the prophet Isaiah did, by the way. If you go read Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees Him in His holiness and then immediately has this sense of his own sinfulness and unworthiness, which is always the proper biblical response. When you have an encounter with God, there's an accompanying with it of your own unworthiness. We're going to see that today with Peter. But nonetheless, God touches him. He cleanses him with the coal, if you remember the vision. And then he asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. We can respond like Isaiah in faith and say, send me, Lord. I know I'm not worthy. I know I might not be gifted, but I trust you. I trust your grace is sufficient. I'll go. Or we can be like Moses and say, God, no, I can't do this. No, no, no. Okay, fine. Where's your brother Aaron? <laughs> He'll be your mouthpiece. Now, God still used Moses, I'm not saying that, but Moses forfeited something that God did want him to do. So, with that, we're going to consider and follow up from the head change, the heart change now, to the lifestyle change. And broadly speaking, we're going to start with the broad this morning and then funnel down to the more specific call of evangelism. So broadly speaking, the lifestyle change is this. We move from being a laborer in the flesh, serving our own interests, the interests of the world, whatever that might be, to becoming a laborer in the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that verse, there's so much truth in that. That could preach by itself. One, God has something prepared for you as His disciple. Work. And not only that, He's prepared it from eternity past. Now that should get us excited, right? That brings purpose and meaning to each one of our lives. God has had something planned for me to walk in from eternity past. Should get us excited about being a laborer. 
But this brings up the essential point in Scripture that there's some, sometimes conflict in the, the relationship between works and faith. And it's important we address that at this point in our study. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 has just finished saying in verses 8 and 9 that we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. Right? We are not saved by our good works. Our good works cannot ever be good enough to get us to heaven. That's the gospel. That's why Christ came. That's why Paul asked the question in Galatians, hey, if, if we could be saved by our works, then why did Christ die? He died in vain. But so many people, in fact, the whole world, apart from the gospel, rely on their own self-righteousness to, to somehow be good enough to get to heaven. And God says, you can't be. You can't ever be good enough. You are saved by grace. Grace is the gift I give you. And you receive it. However, just because we're not saved by works doesn't mean works don't have a part of our faith. They do. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for good works. That's a good way to remember that. And that's, if you go read the book of James, chapter 2, that's the balance. That's what James is talking about in verses 14 and following. Hey, if you say you have faith, but you don't have works, what kind of faith is that? It's useless. It's vain. And many people are here. Many people boast in their faith and their religion and, and their zeal. And yet their lifestyle, their, their habits, nothing reflects that of a Christian. That kind of faith is a dead faith. And so works have an important place in the Christian life. And Scripture is, is quite clear on balancing this point. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. So our faith is evidenced by our good works. More than this, the Scripture makes clear that we are His body. This is one passage of many where it talks about the church being the body of Christ. Just as Jesus ascended into heaven, He then sent His Holy Spirit to indwell all who would believe in Him so that we are now His mystical body on earth doing His work. We are His hands, His feet, His eyes. He's still the head, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. But here's what he said. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So God has created us to be His workmanship. That requires a body. We are the body of Christ to do His work on earth until it's done, until we die, or until He takes us home in uh, His coming. We are His hands, His feet. So these are very powerful images for us to understand. The call to discipleship is not a call of ease. It's a call now to become a laborer in His kingdom. Each one of you, we were just told, has been given a gift if you are His. And that gift is to be used for the common good. So what principle does this lay down at this point? Well, it lays down the principle that Essentially, we're after every single person in church becoming active in the church. There's no room for pew sitters is what Christ is after. He doesn't want us to simply come to church and worship and not serve. In fact, our worship is evidenced by the fact that now, hey, I want to give myself somehow in service. That's what we're after. That's becoming a laborer. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. We've been created in Christ Jesus as His workmanship. He gives us His Spirit to become His body, to provide for us all the power we need. I mentioned this passage last week in our study. I told you we were going to look at it because, again, we see this balance. There's Jesus' invitation in verse 28 of Matthew 11. He says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now it would be easy to read that verse and think, Oh, come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. So I don't have to do anything. No, that's not what He says. The very next thing, verse 29, He says, Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So Jesus didn't only say, take my yoke upon you. And He didn't only say, learn from me. He said both together, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We covered the learning part last week. You've got to learn Christ in truth. 
to become a disciple. You need to be in His Word. You need your mind to be being transformed, Romans 12. That's how we grow. Jesus prayed for you in John 17, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So our growth in Christ's likeness is directly tied to how often we're in his word. But he also invites us to take his yoke upon us. We're going to look at that briefly this morning. Well, what is a yoke? The yoke here was a common yoke, usually yoked two oxen together as, as a farmer plowed his field. But the important thing to understand is that there is always a lead ox, the strong, mature one who carried most of the burden and led the weaker, younger one in the way, so that the yoke was pretty much carried by the other ox. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. We yoke with Him in the work, but it's His power and His headship, His leadership in doing the work. There's other metaphors Scripture uses to make the same point. The rest Jesus is talking about is not rest from labor. It's rest from our labor in the flesh. The religious doings. That's the whole context of Matthew 11. You see, religion places all these obligations and burdens on you. That's what happened to the Pharisees in Judaism. They placed these heavy burdens on the people that they couldn't carry these rules and regulations. And if they didn't do it, man, boom, they were hammered. And Jesus says, that's burdensome, you can't carry it. Peter said the same thing in Acts. Why are we placing this yoke on the Gentiles, which we ourselves could never carry? So Jesus isn't talking about labor, work for the kingdom. He's talking about how we do it. We do it by the power of His grace, not by legalism. It's works of faith, as Paul calls it in 1 Thessalonians 1. 1, 3. Here's what he said to him. This is 1 Thessalonians 1.3. Constantly he said, I'm, I'm making mention of you in my prayers, remembering before God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love. He puts two words together that seem like they shouldn't be together. Work and faith. Faith works. Faith is first, and it's evidenced by its work. The work of faith is in contrast to the works of the law, as we just said. You can't be good enough for God. You'll never be righteous enough. You have to receive His grace. Every person in the world is placed in this position of absolute need. None of us can do it. And He knew that. All of us have to learn we walk in His grace. I want you to listen to some verses. I, I wrote a bunch down that talk about this need for God's strength in the inner man for His power to accomplish anything. Here's what Psalm 105.4 says, commands us to seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually, it says. Psalm 28.7, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts. There's faith. Isaiah 40, 30 and 31, you know this one states, Even youth, the youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Here's what Paul prayed for the Ephesian church in Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power in the inner man through His Spirit. And he said to the Colossians in Colossians 1.11, May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The work God calls us to is labor. We can't endure, we can't do on our own. We must find out how is it that we are strengthened with His grace and power. If we want to be accomplished workmen, it's only by His power that we do it. Paul said to the Corinthian church. I love this passage because it, it just shows we're frail people when we're honest with ourselves. We're weak. He captured it to the Corinthians saying, we have been given this treasure, talking about the gospel, in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, in, in our labor and in our evangelism as we're going to look at, we don't want it to be based on our strength and our power. We would accomplish nothing. But when Christ is present and His power is the one moving and working in people's hearts, 
in our ministries, it's going to be powerful. It's going to be fruitful. So it tells us that our labor, all the labor we do, is not burdensome. Why? Because it's His strength doing it. You have at your disposal as the laborer of God infinite power through His Spirit. Most of us, however, fail to tap into this resource. And this is my hope that we will learn that by faith we have access to all we need. I wanted to talk about a distinction here. And this is important. I want to highlight that very often when we talk about labor, we're talking about um, moving tables, you know, mowing lawns, fixing fences for people, bringing meals to people. Physical things that anyone can do in the flesh. And that's part of ministry. I don't want to downplay that. But very often, and I've seen this, we think that that's all of ministry. But ministry and labor is also spiritual work. And this often is lacking in people and in churches. I'm going to read some passages to you to, to highlight this point. Labor is spiritual work. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5 here on the screen, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. He's talking about the leaders, the elders of the church. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. What's the work of an elder? We talk extensively on this. Primarily it's prayer and preaching the Word. That's the work. He would tell in 1 Timothy 5.17, hey, give double honor to those elders who work and labor hard at preaching and teaching you. Spiritual work. Paul gives those people in, in the Scripture who labor in the Gospel with them, he gives them this title, laborers in the Lord. He highlights the spiritual principle of grace working in him saying this, that he labored more than all the rest of the apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. He said in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this, referring to maturity in Christ, the spiritual character that leaders are supposed to be laboring for you, to develop in you. For this, he says, I toil. So what's Paul toiling for? Your spiritual maturity. The work Paul gave himself to was a spiritual work. It required spiritual means for spiritual ends. He says, I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works in me. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders as those who keep watch over your souls. That's the work of leadership. It's spiritual but turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Jesus brings the same point up to would-be followers, and they don't get it. They don't understand. They're still thinking of the fleshly, the physical, the carnal. And He's trying to bring their minds into the spiritual understanding of what He's talking about. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 25, now the context I want to tell you is, he had just fed them the bread. Fed 5,000 people, multiplied it, fed them bread. Great miracle. Was the miracle an end unto itself? No. The, the miracle was intended to bring these people to a greater reality. Look, when you come to be My disciple, I can give you bread. But is that what God's after? No. He's trying to bring us into this greater reality of who He is. Well, in verse 25... The crowd the next day is looking for more bread. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Then he warns them, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they're still thinking of works, right? Well, let me do something. And Jesus, again, corrects them saying this, this is the work of God that you believe. You see that point? It's a spiritual work. Spiritual ends, spiritual means, spiritual realities. 
Philippians 4.3, Paul speaks to the two women, Judea and Sintiq, as those who've labored in the Gospel side by side with me. The Gospel is part of the work. But he also uses in Scripture closely related adjectives to this labor as spiritual work. Listen to these verses. He told the Ephesians that they are to pray at all times in the Spirit, concluding, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Now, if I were to call us to have enduring prayer, labor in prayer, how how often do we do that? Could we do that? I mean, some of us could go put in a 12-hour day, dig in a ditch, no problem. Could we do the same in prayer? Could we do the same in the ministry of the Gospel, in counseling people, in leading people to faith? That's the work He's calling us to. He tells the Romans something similar, saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers. Then we are told also to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 1.27 Finally, Paul summarizes, if you want to turn to Romans 15, Paul actually summarizes his ministry on this point in Romans 15, verse 17 and following. Romans 15.17 In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel of Christ. That's the work Paul gave himself to, and it was accomplished by his power. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who've never been told of Him will see, and those who've never heard will understand. So there's a clear picture in Scripture. Yes, laboring for Christ will involve physical, material realities and energy. But that's not what Christ is primarily after. He's after spiritual realities, spiritual ends, and it's accomplished by spiritual means. And this is really the heart of what discipleship and laboring as a disciple is all about. If you remember in Acts 2.42, I told you it's one of my favorite verses. It's really shaped how I view discipleship and ministry in general. The very first converts on the day of Pentecost, the very first thing they did was they gave themselves continually to the apostles' teaching fellowship, to prayer, to the breaking of bread. Those are the disciplines they picked up. So why this distinction? To summarize it, kingdom labor requires labor in the flesh, but it is primarily a spiritual work with spiritual means and ends. When all that is happening in discipleship is simply physical labor, that to me becomes a huge red flag of a spiritual deficiency. Do you understand what I'm saying, church, with that? If all we're doing is just physical things and we're not persevering in the spiritual things, we're not involved in the spiritual aspects of labor, that's a huge red flag for us of our spiritual health. It means something's wrong. Something's missing. Something's lacking. So, I want to move on. That's why I make that point. Let's funnel it down to the more specific, becoming a fisher of men. So all our labor funnels down, broadly speaking, to either evangelism or building up the saints. That's what our labor in the kingdom consists of. One of those two areas, broadly speaking. And both those categories are in line with the kingdom mission that Jesus is about, which in Matthew 28 we know is making disciples of every nation. So all our labor, and this is a framework for us to understand, What am I to be doing as a disciple? Evangelism, building up the body. And that can take several shapes, several forms, but that's a framework for you to understand what you're being called to to labor for Christ. 
It's in line with the kingdom mission of making disciples. There's tons of passages that talk about this. But specifically, passages about evangelism. And some of you might be sitting there thinking, oh, I'm not evangelist. I, I can't speak to people. I'm terrified to do that. Yes, you can. And you're called to. And if you're His child, you are a missionary. Quit saying you can't share your faith in the Gospel with people. You can do it. Here's what, I want you to hear God's heart. I'm saying these verses to motivate you. Ezekiel 18.23, God declares, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn and live? God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. His desire is that they would turn and live. So what's He do about it? Well, the Gospels tell us in Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And that's you and me. God, let me put this together for us. God didn't desire that you perish in your sin and go to judgment. So what did He do about it? He came and sought you out and saved you. If that's not motivation for us to then take up that same mantle, having received and tasted the grace of God, and then share it with others, nothing else can motivate us. That's the greatest motivation we could have. Having your sins forgiven, having that burden lifted from you and taken and cast as far as the east is from the west, having God's face hidden from all those things you're ashamed of and wouldn't tell a soul. He knows them. And He says, I can remove it from you and I can give you a fresh start. When that truth penetrates your heart, it transforms you. You're not ashamed of the Gospel. You've been set free. All those things that you were ashamed of have now been hidden. In Luke 4, 42 and 43, Jesus says, the, the writer of the Gospel says this, When it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought Him and came to Him, and he would have kept, they would have kept Him from leaving. But Jesus said that to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well. For that is why I was sent for this purpose. Jesus was sent for the purpose of preaching the gospel to other towns. And even when people would lay hold of him to stay there put, he said, no, I got to go otherwhere, other places. He wasn't content to stay. So let's go to our passage, Matthew 4. Becoming a fisher of men. And keep your finger in this passage. We're going to come back to it to end our sermon this morning. But in Matthew 4.19 and following, we'll just read actually beginning verse 18. Your subtitle there might say something like this, Jesus calls the first disciples. We're going to make some distinctions here in a minute. But verse 18 says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Goes on to talk about he did the same thing to John and James, who also followed him. So Jesus calls the disciples in this account to follow him become fishers of men. They were out on the sea, on their boat. They were casting the net into the sea in the act of fishing. And Jesus uses that as an illustration to say, hey, I've got something else you can fish for. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I love this and I want to say this at this point. When I went to Israel, we actually got to go out on the Sea of Galilee with one of a fisherman like this. And he demonstrated for us how they would fish. And they have this huge net that they fold up in a certain way. And the man takes it and he throws it over his shoulder so that it spreads out. It's in a circle or an oval. Spreads out as far as it can on the face of the water. Falls down and then he pulls it up. And he tries to spread the net out over the sea as great as he can to catch the greatest number of fish. He does that over and over. That's the word Jesus used for the net here. For fishing. And it gives a good illustration of what evangelism is about. What do we do when we share the gospel? We spread it out with a broad net. 
We don't know who the Lord is working in. We don't know who the Lord is calling. And often we're biased and prejudiced when we look at people. (laughs) If we're honest, right? Ooh, that guy looks rough. You know, that guy might be the very one who becomes the next Billy Graham. We don't know what God is doing in people's hearts. So what do we do? We cast a broad net. That's evangelism. Share the gospel indiscriminately. Let the result be up to God. That's his prerogative. So he says this in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. He says that the field that has the greatest need for laborers, and this is true today, is in this field of evangelism. John 4.35, he says, Jesus said, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now church, I want you to think about that in today's context. Walk out these doors. Maybe go about five blocks this way and look. Maybe go about 20 blocks that way and look and see. The field ready for harvest? Do you see it? Everywhere. You don't have to leave Clovis. You, in fact, probably don't even have to leave five block radius to prove what Jesus is saying here. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. What we do, though, is this. We come into the church building and we want to shut the blinds because we don't really want to see what's out there. One of the hardest things uh, about volunteering at the PRC is getting exposed to the reality that other people live in, in their lives. And I, I hear stories and I just go, wow. I'm sheltered, and it's happening right here in Clovis. Are you willing to go out and look and see? As Jesus says, go look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see, it's ready. There's a great need for laborers. In fact, that's what he says in this next verse in Luke 10. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His field, into His harvest. Jesus is challenging us here to look at the situation, to get involved. Why? It's ready, guys. The work is God's. It's His field, and it's ready to be harvested. But there's few laborers doing it. It's a challenge for us. We're going to see shortly, the disciples didn't take it up at first. So for us, when Jesus says, look and see, He's wanting us to stop and take in the reality of this situation. In the kingdom of God, we are all to be witnesses. You, me, everyone. You can't sit here and say, that's not me, I'm not an evangelist. Yes, you are. He said in Acts 1.8, before He was taken up into heaven, you shall be My witnesses. So ask yourself, how serious are we about sharing the gospel? Here's what Charles Spurgeon said. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Bluntly said, but I think that's true. In fact, I'm convinced God will not allow you progress in your Christian walk until you take up this mantle. I'm not saying, as we're going to see, that you're not a Christian. But I am saying you won't grow spiritually until you lay down your pride and say, I'll do it, Lord. He won't let you move on. Because this is His passion. This is His work. And He's calling us to this if we're going to be His disciples. And if we say, no, Lord, I'd rather do this, He'll say, okay, you go do that and you'll shipwreck your faith. And when we shipwreck our faith, He'll say, let me by my grace take you back to this point and start over. He'll bring us right back there. I want to do a contrast with you to help you see this point. So follow me with this. Go to John chapter 1. You can keep your finger here in Matthew. We just read Matthew, so I'm not going to read it again. But that subtitle in Matthew, I think, is a bit deceiving. As I pointed it out, it says Jesus calls His first disciples. We're going to make a distinction. That's not when the disciples first met Jesus. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 35, 
This is actually the account of when Simon and his brother Andrew became believers. This is their conversion account. Beginning in verse 35, the next day again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him, John the Baptist, say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they said, They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which means Peter. That's Andrew and Simon Peter's conversion right there. They came. John the Baptist said, there's the Lamb of God. That's the Christ. It's the one I've been talking about. They said, okay, I'm in. Boom. They're converted. That's a very different account than Matthew's calling, right? See, what happened is this. Simon and Andrew came to faith. They came to believe Jesus is the Messiah. But what they do? They went back to their old life of fishing. Is that not what we do? <laughs> we come to faith and then we just keep on trucking along how we've always been doing. So Jesus graciously comes to them again. He sees them out there fishing on the boat. He says, hey, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They drop their nets, they go. That's the first call to become a disciple. To truly take up the mantle and say, okay, are you serious about following me? Come on. Well, they obeyed. However, let's contrast now Matthew's account with the account of Luke chapter 5. And here's where we're going to end. Some time passed after this calling in Matthew for, for them to follow him and become fishers of men. We don't know how much time, but some time passed and they went back to fishing until this account in Luke 5, which is now a third call. And it's much more weighty. In Matthew, there's no miracle. Jesus is standing on the shore. He says, follow me. Okay, we'll do it. We've come to believe you're the Christ. Let's go. They do for a time, and then they go back. On one occasion, Luke 5.1, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, now there's the spiritual work. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen, now notice Luke doesn't call them disciples there. What's he call them? Fishermen, because they really haven't become disciples yet. They're still fishermen. Had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So what's the situation? Simon is sitting there washing his nets, different than Matthew. In Matthew, he was out on the sea casting his nets. Here he's on shore washing his nets. Jesus is one to teach the people. Jesus is wanting to go fishing. So he says, Simon, put out your boat. Let me speak to him. He speaks to him for a little while. But then what's he do? He turns his attention from the crowd and he talks to Peter. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. We're going to talk about that in a second. Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. That's James and John. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. He said this once already to him. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything. 
Now underline that word if you're taking notes. Everything. And followed him. So in Luke's account here, Jesus once again comes to the disciples. They have believed in him as Savior. They answered the call to follow for a little bit, then went back to their old life. And Jesus says, it's time to follow. But this time he makes his point with an act of power. How easy and how often do we go back to those things that we're comfortable with? We're honest with ourselves, guys. It's so much easier to just do what we know. When Jesus says, no, I want you to do something different. I want you to follow me. And it's going to require that you trust me. Peter and John, Andrew, James, all needed this act of power to say, okay, I'll trust you. What Jesus asked Simon to do was doubly improbable. Verse 4 and 6, He said to Simon, Put out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. When they had done this, verse 6, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. It goes on to say that they filled two other boats and they started to sink. What's the purpose of this? I've just summarized it. After Jesus finished fishing for people in Luke 5-4, He turns to Simon. And he fishes for Simon. He tells Simon to do something doubly improbable. One, fishing during the day is not when people fish. They fish at night. That's what Simon said. Lord, we've been fishing all night. And we haven't caught anything. Simon knew fishing. Why go in the day, Lord? The second improbable thing was, Simon, put your boat out into the deep. No, you fish in the shallow water. That's where the fish are. Two things that Jesus said, told Simon to do. Simon's thinking, uh, I don't get it. When he started pulling in the fish by the bundles, he understood what Jesus was doing. And he fell down at his knees. He said, I am a sinful man. All of a sudden, Simon's arrogance, his pride, his reluctance to listen and follow the Lord was exposed. And he understood that, look, if Jesus is calling you to do something, He's not just some man calling you to do something. God is with Him. And He's calling you to do something, He will be with you. And His power will accompany that which He calls you to do. Just do it. If He's calling you to become a fisher of men, go. In fact, as I was talking with Jill last night, if you've had the privilege of leading someone to faith in Christ who didn't know Him before, there is no greater joy. It's addicting to see someone's sins forgiven and that burden of their heart released and now they're free, they're full of joy, they're full of life. Why wouldn't we want to see more of that? But we're terrified and our fear grips us and it paralyzes us so that we don't do it. And it's the greatest thing in the world. And that's the point of Peter here. That's why Jesus had to break through in the way He did. Becoming an evangelist begins with worship. When Simon Peter saw what happened, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And when they brought him the boats to the land, they left everything. I want you to understand what I mean by that. Becoming an evangelist begins with worship. You will never become an evangelist. You'll never overcome fear in sharing the Gospel until you fear the Lord. Until you truly let this penetrate your heart. Worship is where we are transformed. And the work is what flows from that. So often we try and change all these outward things and our hearts and our minds are never changed. And so we become frustrated with the lack of fruit. We're like Simon, hey, I fished all night and got nothing. Yeah, because you're laboring in the flesh, not by the Spirit. We need to be transformed through worship. And then guess what happens? Our nets begin to break. All of a sudden, there's fruit. I love this point. 
I love this point for many reasons. One, we see the grace of Christ, right? This is the third call. He didn't give up on Peter. He came back and back and back and back. And He will for you too, if you've been converted. He'll ask you again and again and again. But once worship entered Peter's heart, following in discipleship was easy. They drug the boats ashore and said, see ya. (laughs) They left everything. Why? Because they just found everything they needed. So what does this teach us? One, shows us that God's mission doesn't change even in the face of our fear. His mission is the same. It doesn't change because we don't want to do it. In the process of all this, God changes us. He changes our hearts. He changes our minds. He changes our motivations, our outlook, until we join Him in His mission. This call to follow Him in discipleship doesn't change. All that we've looked at these past two weeks reveal God's patience with His disciples. It's a process. And I get it. But we've got to answer the call as well. We answer the call. God's grace is enduring. His love for us and for the lost is burning and unending. As we read earlier, His mission, the purpose He came was to preach the Gospel to seek and save the lost. Let that heart of God burn in your heart and you will be compelled to share the Gospel with those who don't know the Lord. There is nothing greater. Secondly, it teaches us that we are just like Peter, Andrew, and the rest, aren't we? It's easy to go back to what we're familiar with. It's easy to just labor in the field that we know. But God will call us to say, I'm calling you to this field because this field is ripe for harvest and it needs laborers. Will you go? We're just like the disciples. Who of us in church, and I want you to ask yourself this, who of us here is willing like Isaiah to say, I'll go? Send me. We're going to have our missionaries here in two weeks. If you remember Jacobo's testimony, he was an engineer for Intel making six figures. And he said, I'll go, Lord. I'll drop all that. I'll go. I'm inspired by that. That should be inspiring to us. I would say, If you were to ask me honestly to evaluate our church and where I thought we were at in the process of discipleship, if I'm honest, I think we're right here. I do. I think the majority of us are right where the disciples were in Luke chapter 5. And what I'm praying for for us is that the Lord does something somehow in your life to cause you to fear Him and say, Lord, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Because when that kind of worship enters your heart, you will take up the call to share the gospel. It just happens. So I want you to know, if things start happening in your life, and you're being challenged to change, I'm saying, thank you, Lord, for answering my prayer. I don't want us to stay in Luke 5 forever, church. Now, there's going to be growing pains. There's going to be failures. I get it. Look at Peter. Peter would go on to follow the Lord for the next year and a half, two years, and then deny him the night he was crucified. There's going to be failures, but there's restoration as well. And Peter would become such an important person in the early church history as we saw. I love this point. It teaches us that we are laborers in God's field for His kingdom. Labor includes physical toil, but it also is primarily about spiritual Activity empowered by God's Spirit. Thirdly, it teaches us what Paul said about the Gospel in Romans chapter 1. That the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. I read this week in my own personal reading something that was exactly on point to this point. When we as a church start viewing the Gospel as, oh yeah, I know that. Oh man, we're in trouble. When the gospel becomes kind of old news to us, and oh, that's, that's basic. I hope we never get there with the gospel because it is a mystery of mysteries. And it's beautiful. And it captures our heart. And it fills us with zeal. 
And when it ceases to do that, we will cease to be a fruitful church. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Meditate on it. Learn from it. I heard a quote. I don't know who said it. I can't remember. But it said something like this. He who sits longest at the foot of the cross is most wise. When you just sit and meditate upon the work of God in the gospel, oh man, how you're transformed. The depth of your spiritual walk will be incomparable. Don't ever leave the truth of the gospel. It's not secondary. It's the center. It's the sidewalls. It's the front and back. It's everything. Primary. And that's why Jesus tells us, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. That's my kingdom program. Will you come and follow me? So with that, I want to invite the worship team back up. We're going to sing one last song. You know it, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. But as we sing, I want you to just think about the mercy of God towards you. I want you to be filled with a thankfulness, a joy for what the Lord has done for you, what He continues to do for you. Let me pray. Father, thank You for not giving up on us. Even when we are resistant to answer Your call to obey it, Father, You graciously give it again. It's it's a marvel, Lord. We are so weak. We are so overcome by troubles, by fears, by sin, by so many things, and yet You've given us all, all we need in Christ. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we may walk in a manner worthy of the call to which we've been called. Father, specifically for our church, I pray You fill us with an evangelistic zeal. Father, I pray that you fill us with this zeal by transforming us into true worshipers where our hearts are full of thankfulness for the gospel, for saving us, for forgiving me of so many things, for giving me a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth chance. It's your great grace as we just sang, Lord. And we want other people to know it. So as we sing about you, our wonderful, merciful Savior, Lord, may we sing with joy in our hearts. Father, help us to resolve to answer the call and become a dedicated disciple. Not telling you no, because you are our Lord. You are our master. And servant has no place to say no. But Father, your, your work is joyful. Your burden is easy. It's light. The rewards of our labor are eternal rewards. There's nothing greater to what we can be called to. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Would you please stand with us?